everyone, this is Craig. This is a special edition of Acid Horizon. We recorded this episode via Zoom. There's seven people in the discussion. We have Adam, Matt, Will, and then some friends from across the globe to discuss destituent communism. And before I forget, I just wanted to let you know that Asset Horizon has recently opened its own Discord. Access to the Discord is available at the mid-tier and above. That's anyone supporting us at the $5 level or higher on a monthly basis. We are using the Discord as an adjunct to the reading group. Moreover, in a week or two, we are going to start yet another reading group that's going to be held exclusively on Discord. This reading group will focus on the work of George Bataille. We'll start with some essays and then we'll work our way up to the Accursed Share series. We would love to see you there, so to subscribe, just navigate to the show notes and join our Patreon. Okay, let's begin today's discussion of Destituent Power, Destituent Communism, and the work of Marcelo Tari. Okay, welcome everyone. This is Craig from Asset Horizon, and today we are going to conduct an informal panel on the notion of destituent communism or destituent power. And for this, we have some special guests who have reached out to us and some other folks that we have interacted with online, whom we have all brought here together today to discuss Marcelo Tari's book, there is no unhappy revolution and some attendant topics. And for this discussion already in the panel, we have some folks. We have Matteo and we have Henry and we have some other folks who may be joining us along the way. I also have with us Adam, Matt and Will's going to be more or less moderating this discussion. But first, let's introduce some of the folks who are here. We'll start with Matteo and then we'll go to Henry. So Matteo, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure, Greg. Thanks for the invitation. And so I actually, I got to know Tari's work through his translation of the Invisible Committee in Italian. And I was at the time, and I'm still doing a PhD on Italian autonomy and Radio Alice and sort of radical media culture. And after a bit of writing and realizing that his book his previous book not the one that we're discussing today but the one he wrote about italian autonomy and the movement of 77 in italy had not been translated yet i decided to translate it and got in touch with him and with some folks in the states in chicago and we are currently working on this and hopefully bringing it into the english language soon so that's my sort of my, my connection to the topic Thank you, Matteo. And then on to Henry is the host of a podcast called Forms. Henry, could you tell us about yourself in the podcast? Yeah, so I'm uh, Henry Wallace. I host Forms podcast. And I came across Terry's work mostly because I had spent some time on the Zad at Notre Dame de Londres and in some other sort of European social movements. And basically friends of friends that were familiar with Terry's work recommended to me. I thought it was very interesting. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's a, a very interesting look at some very powerful and you know, it's hard for me to talk about in a way because his work is touching on something that for me is very personal and is very transformative in my own life. So it's kind of trying to explain like the beauty of art or sunset to somebody. It kind of comes across corny if I try to talk about it too much, but I'm here to listen and learn and contribute what I can to the discussion. 
Great. And so at this point, we'll basically have Will take it away. Will has been working with this literature for a little bit now, and I think it's going to be a a research area as he moves into his uh, PhD. Will, can you just give us an introduction of the book and some initial thoughts and impressions that you had regarding Tari? Yeah, for sure. I'm going to be relatively brief because I don't want to sap any possibility for concepts and themes manifesting naturally in the conversation. I think one of the powerful elements of this text is the way that it flows through various problems through very distant epochs, right? Like, I think that the way in which Tari approaches the question of revolutionary history is really important and extremely distinct. I think the best way to describe this text is to understand it in relation to a history of failure to a history of codes where the blood is still sort of drying, but extremely visible, to take that term from from Foucault, the the blood on the dried codes. Tari is attempting to posit a theorization of a concept that has existed in various figures throughout the 20th century, from Walter Benjamin to Giorgio Gamben. And it's this theory of destitution which he opposes to the concept of constituent power, right? So just briefly on constituent power, which I think gets its best articulation in Benjamin's critique of violence, where constituent power is sort of a law constituting form of power. And destitution operates in a sort of opposite but not caught within it dialectically. Destituent power needs to be understood, I think, for Tari as a form of delinking and of subtraction. And what Tari wants to do is trace a history of this concept that is both explicitly articulated, right, in concepts like divine violence for Benjamin, but also implicitly articulated in concepts like the the plebe for Foucault, or initially for certain understandings of the concept of form of life in Agamben before destituent power, you know, thoroughly manifests in his work. So what Foucault is, uh, (laughs) what Tari is tracing in this, in this book is the history and potentiality of a concept that has a concealed tradition within a history of material struggles. So with that sort of out of the way, and I think that's a very cruddy explanation of the text. Again, it's kind of hard to explain because I don't think I've come across a concept or a theorist or a work like this. It really is a remarkably refreshing and extremely challenging book. But before we jump into just general discussion, I think one way to start would be to talk about this tradition that Tari is attempting to give voice to, right? But not trying to submit it to dominant modes of scholastic thinking, right? Like Tari is extremely affirmative in his opposition to ossified academic understandings of the conceptual history of resistance, right? And this comes through in his polemic against Foucauldians, um, towards the end of the book, which I was speaking about with friends this morning. But when we talk about this concealed tradition, maybe all of us can discuss briefly what elements of Tari's 
historical depiction of constituency stood out to you? Because we have various people on this panel, right? Henry Wallace works in particular fields of theology that are heavily invested in an understanding of messianic time. Matthew, of course, will be our one voice of the Negria camp here. And then Adam Jones will also have, I'm sure, something to say about Tari's depiction of the concept of the ego. But I think more importantly, Adam too is relatively invested in this understanding of destitution. So maybe what we'll do is start with Matteo, who has probably out of all of us the most intimate understanding of Tari. And maybe Matteo can speak to like a particular moment or analysis of a figure in this tradition that stood out? Well, I think, first of all, I just wanted to make a note in respect to what you were saying about Paris also being very polemic about a certain academic tradition, which is a note about the style in which he writes, which I think is very interesting because the style, it's a common style in both the books of his, and it's a style that somehow goes along with the point that he makes at some point in the previous book about the partiality of the point of view, the sort of being like within the struggle and sort of the practice happens and then it is followed by a certain uh, theory. And I think the way that he somehow, that he talks, that he, that he traces the history of insurrection in this book. And I think it's very much to some extent, yes, a history of failure, a history of the also the, the pessimism, how to organize pessimism, as he calls it. But I think the partisan way, so to say, in which he does it is very, is very enlightening because that is somehow what is also important about the concept of destitution, in my opinion, connected to the question of temporality, which is in the now, like, how do we open this other temporality? And the question for that is also a question of style for example, in the exposition of this thought. Anyway, I think that I will, if we want to talk about the sort of the situant power or potency and this and a, and a good example of that, I think that I will definitely start from what I know best and what I'm working on now, which is this, which he also mentions in, in this book, which is the moment of 77 in Italy, which was a politics and it was it's about the idea that somehow the area of this political movement was somehow was not unitary it was very very diverse very multiform and protean and somehow they were using the the contradictions in a productive way they were using the contradictions to somehow mm, keep the sort of the constituent process at bay to some extent. So they were using it not to become a party, not to become an organization, not to become the state. So in Italy, obviously, the uh, sort of the main the accepted narrative makes a lot of parallels between armed terrorism and autonomia, but actually the, the difference in there is that armed terrorism in those years in Italy mainly Brigate Rosso, but also Prima Linea, which was an organization that to some extent stemmed from autonomia, 
was directly relating to the state. It was the direct opposition to the state, sort of the, the other face of the coin. Whereas autonomia, as you were saying before, is not in this, in this dialectical opposition, but somehow it was more at the antipode of it. No, so it's uh, it's somehow different, and it's different in a way that I think also it's the way that Agamben talks about the constituent power, something that deactivates and there's inoperative. So the point I think of autonomy and a lot of practices of subversion of language, of media culture, and of ways of organization, were actually aiming at this rendering inoperative something that was already existing and repurposing it. So this is, I think, interesting because it, it talks to something very pragmatic to some extent. It talks about the what is in the now and what actually can sort of become through this reinterpretation and access into another space and another temporality, which is beyond the, what is represented by capitalist domination. So I think this is an interesting point. That was great. Just so that I don't have to bounce back and forth between introducing speakers because they've already been introduced. We'll have Henry speak and then Donji. We're just speaking about... Also, we have a, a new person has manifested in, in the discussion. And when you speak, if you could just give a brief synopsis of what you're working on. Of course, everyone's work will be in the links of the descriptor or wherever you may amble to this discussion. But we'll have... Henry speak, then Adam, then Matthew, and then Craig, so that Donji has some time to prepare. We're just speaking about initially like first impressions of the conceptual framework of this book. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's very interesting how Tari begins because he goes to a topic that's near and dear to my heart and is kind of a maybe a lesser known or sort of a more obscure aspect of the whole Gamben, etc. gang's work, which is their close reading of Paul. And this is actually an incredibly obscure and difficult subject, even for people that read Paul regularly, because concepts that Tari introduces, like the Katachan in, uh, I think it's in chapter one, right? Where he talks about this, just literally in the beginning of the book. And he's just throwing these things out. Like, what is he talking about? What's going on here? But this is actually a concept. And, and this is part of my interest in theology and my interest in reading the original Christian sources of the scriptures themselves and also the early church fathers is because when we think of religion and theology, we often don't, our minds don't alight upon uh, this sort of uh, social struggle. But really what they have to say is very radical and bizarre and strange to our ears. And when it comes to this concept of, of destitution, there's something of the cannot in, in the destitution, the self-emptying. And in Christian theology, for example, the self-emptying is uh, ultimately found in Christ himself, who, according to the scriptures, emptied himself and took the form of the slave and dwelt among us. And there's all these references in Paul and others about Christ emptying himself and emptying himself. And in the early church fathers and the original Christian communities, I mean, you can find people like Ignatius of Antioch. Let me pull this up actually really quick. Sorry. Who in his epistle to the Romans, he's going to be executed by the Roman state. And he's writing to his friends at the place he'll be executed. And he says, birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not. Suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I shall be a human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion of my God. There's this sense that for Ignatius, 
and for Paul and for all these you know people that Tari is referencing in the beginning of the book, that they're not truly human yet. That their true humanity, that the human being isn't created in the Genesis uh, you know, story of ancient uh, Hebrew Bible, but it's in the moment where Christ is on the cross and it is finished. That's where there's a true human being. When it's completely empty, that's where there's a true possibility for a life you know, everlasting, a life that abounds, a life that breaks with all of our conceptions that was just evoked of time, et cetera, et cetera. So on the one hand, the beginning of the book is really heavy on topics that you could reflect on for a long time. And then at the end of the book, Tari talks about concrete uh, matters that are very close to my heart. Like I mentioned before, the Zad at Notre Dame de Londres or the struggle in the Val de Souza and things like this that are, for me, it, totally formative of how I view politics. And when I've done a lot of different political things in my life. I've registered people to vote. I've you know done all kinds of stuff. But when you show up in the Val de Souza, it's a completely other world. You have no idea like where you are, how long you've been there, what's going on. <laughs> You're in a completely other mode of existence. Your life isn't the same. Nothing matters in the same way that matters before. And it's kind of hard to evoke. And so I salute Tari for attempting, but that, that's at least for me, kind of my, my interest with his work and with this book. Yeah, no, the, the canonic is all over here. And like, I think this connects back to, to, to Benjamin very clearly, right? This desire to, to make this revolutionary tradition accountable to everything from Jewish mysticism to figures like Marguerite Perret, right? So I think that, that you and Adam will have a lot to say about kenosis and, Adam is up next. <laughs> yeah, kenosis has been a thing I've been wrestling a lot with, but in terms of like Taurine's situation, uh, question, I guess, my big interest in this is partially to examine the link between uh, sort of destitution and dialectics, because it also goes back to an Akambenian reading of Paul, because in the use of bodies, the term uh, in Paul, katagain, which is the Greek for rendering an operative, is translated into the German tradition through Luther, in the form of the world of Alfhaben. So Alfhaben has this latent potentiality in how it enters this German reading of the scriptures that then determines, in a way, the standardization of the German language in the form of the uh, role that the Luther Bible played. And I think you know, he Hegel must have seen something in that. And there's a certain level of rendering operative you get in Hegel, but only ever at the end of a system. That's when the system has to close itself off and leave it to you, so to speak. And it's... Um, so I came to Tari sort of looking for a, a, an impulse constituency, which would be a dialectical rendering and operative through revealing what Gambin would call the constituent potential, revealing the, the excess or the unrepresentable at the heart of the state affairs. And then when I started reading it, the notion of the militant is where this notion of kenosis comes in. This idea that we are using, emptying ourselves, we're using life up in that sense. We're more ourselves when we partake in this sort of... Uh, form of constituent form of life, insurrectionary mode of action and self-practice than we was before, because otherwise it was just this residual kind of um, subjection or integration into a cybernetic system, which we was always kind of ex in excess of. There is a sense in which there's not much of a, a sense of a, a future to come in this. It, there is very much a, a temporality of the end here, a time that remains. This is why I mentioned as well the notion of the, the catacomb, which is essentially just taken out of Paul, it's this notion of that which holds back the coming of the lawless one and the salvation that supersedes that. Essentially, what holds back communism in, if it's in Tari's term, what is holding us back from engaging in the struggle or engaging in the crisis? And it's very interesting how he uses the Catacon in 
I think chapter uh, five or six or so, he talks about the state as being more like an active catacomb. It's like it's holding back from the crisis, which it's which is always this is already existing in the climate change. And I can think we can see this function today in the sense in which the sphere of um, what is protected by the state holding back these forces is just that circle is shrinking smaller and smaller. And it's ultimately we need to sort of get rid of this cataconic function of the state in order to truly engage in the struggle that would you know, prevent the circle from, we, we can't trust this sort of circle to enclose us any further without completely swallowing us up. And that required destitution of ourselves as well as of the a deactivation of the very process of self-making in the same way that we make, remake ourselves in this sort of new creative act. So I want to say a little bit very briefly about how I sort of approach texts like this. Because I, I guess it's true, but I was sort of introduced sort of a sort of the Negri's perspective. I have, I have some sympathy, I suppose, for, for a lot of Negri's work. But the way I approach this is, and this is what stood out to me in, in, in this text as well, is there's a passage where I think summarizes it for me quite nicely, where Tawi says that the destituent strike demands nothing. It makes a negative claim. And at the end of that passage, he quotes Pasolini, who he says, provocatively addressed the students of 68, but apparently they never read through to the end of his poem, where he says, Stop thinking about your rights. Stop demanding things of power. That, for me, is why I'm interested in in, in thinkers like Tari or Gambon or the Invisible Committee and so on. Because, and I, I don't want this to be sort of biographical. We want to be talking about Tari. But during my masters, I was I was interested in the way that Carl Schmitt had been used in the the tradition of critical theory, whether that was Derrida or Le Clermouf or uh, a Gambon and so on, right? And I got really interested in Le Clermouf at the time and. Maybe I'm being honest, partly because of sort of the novelty of it, you know, but I was interested in it. And in the end, I became very, very dissatisfied with the way that it, it didn't seem to meaning, meaningfully pose an alternative to either the orthodox understandings of Leninist understanding of revolution or the frankly hopeless reformism of social democratic. And so what I was after at the time was a third option. And it's exactly what he quotes Pasolini as saying is this idea of no longer sort of making demands of power, right? And that's what I think the purpose of this concept of destitution or destitutive power is that's sort of where it's meant to intervene on, right? That's that's the terrain it's trying to intervene on, is to say that there is, there is an alternative to this, right? That there is another way of not just thinking, but acting in this political sense, right? And that, that's what I always find really persuasive in, in, in Tawi, in this book, in the Invisible Committee and Agamben elsewhere. I have to admit, I, I do sometimes struggle with the, particularly in Agamben, with the, I think it was it's sort of the religious elements that, that Henry was just speaking to there, the catacomb and so on. I don't have a background in, in theology and it's not really my area, but, but it's why I find him compelling. But Terry as a writer and as sort of a, a, a thinker is to try to conceptualize a sort of a force of communism which not only doesn't resemble the mistakes and failures of the past, but which in a certain sense sort of, it refuses to model itself on the state or a modified form of capitalism and so on. It sees something very different from that. And I was thinking about it again. I'll sort of probably end on this point. We'll probably come back to it later. But I was reading again through parts of what is philosophy yesterday, because my, my, my PhD thesis at the moment is on radical democracy in Deleuze and Guattari, which I know none of his authors like the idea of the word democracy at all. But the way I'm going is actually, I think, very similar to what, what they talk about. And there's this passage where in what is philosophy, they talk about, where is it here? Let me pick it up. 
I noticed that Tawi uses these phrases quite quite a few times in, in his text. He talks about a becoming revolutionary, which is not the same thing as the past, present, or future of revolutions, and a becoming democratic that is not the same as what states of law are, or even a becoming Greek that is not the same as what the Greeks were. I think that's a really interesting idea. I think that seems to be also what Tawi and thinkers in this tradition are trying to do is becoming revolutionary, which he talks about, which isn't identical with what revolutions have looked like or do look like in the present. It's something very different. It, it, it involves a kind of process and a self-transformation which doesn't replicate the state or the model of the state, whether it's in the model of the party with the leadership and the bureaucratic apparatus and so on, or in the attempt to seize power that you can wield the, the levers of power in a new way, which reproduces many of the same problems that we sought to escape in the first instance. So that, that, that's basically what I find really interesting and important in, the, in this work, is that attempt to think through this alternative to the ways we've been used to thinking about politics, whether it's, whether it's binary reform or revolution, right? And I think in a sense, we can see destitution or destitutive power or this form of politics as a kind of way out of that, or at least that's the way I would approach it. So I come from a sort of political theory angle, I suppose, but I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll stop rambling. Okay, thanks. I think maybe one of the best ways that I could contribute to this discussion, well, first, I think a lot has been said between Adam and Matt, and maybe at this time we can have any or all of our guests respond to any of the comments that they made, and then maybe I'll go. I have a few questions in mind, and I would like to hear some responses maybe before offering the final formulation of those questions. So uh, since we haven't heard much from Danji yet, Danji, would you like to make any comments? Yeah, sure. Hi, I can jump in. I'm on a phone, unfortunately, but such the such was the cards the word world dealt me this morning. So hopefully you can hear me all right. You sound um, great. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, wonderful stuff has been said. My name's Danji. I'm a musician and and a thinker, I guess this sort of communist. I'm doing some research inside of the worlds of underground music worlds and cities and outside of cities and the liminal spaces that get created in them and the types of social and political formations that can come out of them. The world that I've kind of like spent a lot of my time in Montreal over the last like decade and a half kind of being the basis for my inquiries. So without diving too much into the same theoretical concerns that were just brought up, although it's very interesting to me, just as like briefly, like this book to me just felt very naturally descriptive of things which I feel like I've known and understood as like methods towards togetherness that kind of like have been at work and operational, I think in subtle uh, ways in a lot of the um a lot of the places and a lot of the groups of people working on things in, in worlds that I really care about. I think that the, I forget if it was in the very beginning couple chapters, but he uses this phrase intensity condensers or intensity condensing at times, which the creation of new worlds kind of being driven by getting lost in these forms of intense, emotive, potentially like the type of thing that can destitute oneself by getting overwhelmed and lost. He writes these beautiful parallels between communism and revolution and love that kind of just dive into this poetic meditation on how we get absorbed into experiences which actually kind of make us defect from this hegemonic time of capitalism, which is hurtling towards a brick wall of, of the end of the world, and that there's no other way that that time and that way of being can really end. So we defect from it when we can, and 
the ways that ends up happening are often through these moments that are just overwhelmingly, unavoidably intense. And so I'm interested in the tactics and techniques of like, how do we get granular about like intensifying these or condensing these intensities wherever we are? How do we make these worlds that much more intoxicating so that they drop more and more people to defect, to hear that call and jump out of the world and the time of the world that's hurtling itself towards the end of time. He has this nice little quote, only those who have experienced love can access communism immediately, or thinking of love as exercise almost towards communism, or as, so for me, some of this stuff is just very, almost like poetic, generative kind of like exercises, like practicing piano or something. How can we live our lives in ways that draw us deeper into like loving compassionate like yeah spiritual relationship with the world around us and that connects us to what i think tari's calling communism and what i'd like to continue to work towards not just in my life not just in my projects but really in every single kind of living breathing interaction with the living world around me so uh in a nutshell this is kind of what made me really excited about this book. There's some really learned, wise people on this call, which I'll be excited to listen to, uh, hear more about it, but I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you, Danji. We'll do Matteo and then Henry, and then I'll follow up with some questions and comments. All right. Danji, thank you so much as well, because I really enjoyed, I think you said something about methods of togetherness, which which is uh, something that I like a lot. And, and I think at some point towards the end of the book, he actually talks about the importance of the situation. He talks about the situation rather than the subject of the fact or the idea that the subject should be strategically substituted by the situation as the this sort of device, this sort of center of action, as I think he says, so apologies, I have the Italian book. So, uh, so yeah, to the disappearance of the subject as center of action is, is substituted by something else, which comprehends a place and a form of life in order to acquire a certain consistency and a certain duration. And so I think this is, this is a key question somehow and again i think I, for me it always comes back to this sort of pragmatic question of then how do we translate it into practical um, things my personal interest in into this translation of the practical is connected to media practices because i i work in, in in community radio and so that for example has a lot to do with with language and how can you actually change a certain language, linguistic setting or a certain communicational setting in order to open up possibilities for the people that are talking. So in radio, it's obviously interesting because it means, okay, you're talking, who, who sends, who receives, what kind of subjectivities are at play in there, what kind of hierarchies are there. And I think this is interesting. This, I mean, to some extent, yes, it comes back to situationism and this idea also of, okay, of, of um, a certain detournement, a certain subverting of, of a space, of a public space as well. I think also what I found very interesting in the book is that he talks about the metropolis and he makes this reference to the urbanists the, this russian movement the early 20s and i i find very interesting what he says 
we shouldn't be de-urbanizing, but de-metropolizing today. And this difference is quite interesting because the metropolis, to some extent, is, is, a, is, a, mechani- is a mechanism no, that produces subjectivities in a certain way. So the question is, okay, how do we actually inhabit that, those same spaces, but learn to construct situations in order to produce subjectivities in a different way or to make these productions inoperative. That's a very good point. This also brings up to some, what you just said, Matteo, brings up what Matthew was bringing up earlier about the relationship of sort of the destitutive hypothesis, if we want to talk about it this way, comparing and contrasting with more traditional Marxist or uh, Leninist or however you want to portray it, sort of older left conceptions of struggle and how should we move forward, like different proposals, so to speak. And I think one of the most interesting, but also difficult aspects of the destituent hypothesis is this conception of worlds and of difference and of situations opening up new worlds and difference and new subjectivities, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really, if you look at the sort of genealogy of some of the things that Tari cites in the book, I brought up the Zad a few times, the beginning of these kind of struggles historically, in France at least, which I'm most familiar with, occurs directly after May 1968. So directly after May 1968 and 1970, you have the struggle for Larzac in the sort of plateau in southern France where the military industrial complex wants to take over this huge territory to build some kind of abomination. And the peasants there and some townspeople from the, the town of Mio nearby organize in committees to prevent this by occupying the land, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a model for a lot of the anti-globalization things like we've already mentioned and that Atari mentions in the book. And one of the the sort of interesting things about these locations is that they're running up against this universalizing tendency within the left of there's one kind of future for all mankind. We're all going to be this kind of flat, uh, new Soviet subject and et cetera, et cetera. And I think this can strike people sometimes as conservative or as some kind of species of traditionalism, when in fact, it's just the opposite. Because if you look at these moments where, for example, the state wants to destroy some traditional area, like in Notre Dame de Londres, for example, they took over about 4,000 acres of land to build an airport. And a lot of people were removed from the territory. Some remained and fought in struggle. Through the course of the struggle, it's not that we returned to the old sort of previous form of life, but that new forms of life were experimented with. So it's not a return to some kind of traditional form that's resisting modernity, but it's saying, faced with the crisis brought on by the modern state, how are we going to respond? And we we don't have to simply accept the biopolitical regime. We don't have to accept uh, being this kind of barcoded and surveyed and biometrically defined uh, subjects. So I think that's part of, at least for me, one of the more interesting things about this hypothesis. It also gives us a way to meaningfully consider struggle on a small scale. And just to be very honest, like I've been a part of a number of different things in my life. And a lot of the traditional left institutions were big disappointments. I was in a union struggle on several different occasions that completely failed. And faced with this failure, a lot of people like, well, what am I going to do? And the destitutive hypothesis it gives you something to do that's meaningful, that it's at least an experiment. You're at least trying something. So I think that's also why it's very appealing to people is because it it gives a real concrete alternative for action than just hoping that next time Bernie runs for like the seventh time or whatever as a hologram, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll get him across the, the finish line. Well, 
Will's original question was, what stood out to me in this text? And one of the things that I think about whenever reading these texts, especially with respect to the folks who support us and the folks who listen to us and in the interest areas they have, is the relationship to other figures that we're working with pretty regularly. Right now, maybe you've seen it. We just did an, an interview with Stuart Kendall. I have Bataille on the brain because I've been steeped in that literature for a while now. Of course, Deleuze. And then Nietzsche is a big mediator of mine, too. This is my second time coming back to the Tari text. And I would say that the kind of struggles or questions that I had put on hold for a while. And that was a sort of pee under the mattress that now I'm feeling once again, diving back into the text. And the the sort of challenge that I have, maybe I better pose it first as a series of questions, and then I'll talk about the challenge that I have. So the question that's important to me, both politically and philosophically, is how do we create a ladder out of subjectivity? How do we escape these subjectivating forces in which we are fully enmeshed? Because I think if the stakes are finding a new world, building a new world, appearing in a new world, whatever you want to call it, it, it seems to me that one of the, the preeminent questions is how do we create ourselves into a kind of register where the current existing forces of capitalism, of state hegemony, do not take on the body. We can find a way out. And so the, the question is, what is it that we're becoming or what can we become? And it raises, for me, one of the, the questions that's actually approached in the text is this question of futurity in the present. To me, and this is something that's in Bataille, right? That one of the principal ways in which the productivist paradigm operates on the body is by imbuing it or, you know, imputing to it the necessity of the future. And Tari seems to, to firmly give up on that, or at least he wants to reorient us to a kind of radical presentism that we, we see in Bataille. The question of sovereignty comes to mind here. How do we take back what is our share of sovereignty in the world and, and become the kind of subject, if you will, that is not captured by these forces? Another thing that stood out to me in this text that I really like is that it seems to, to a certain extent that Tari is interested in slipping out from underneath, in a Nietzschean sense, what I would call a kind of reactivity. He clearly disparages the notion that we must become proletarian, the idea that the proletariat has done anything revolutionary in the history of communism or of the 20 or 21st century is completely off the table for him, it seems. And I think there's something very strong in that. And so the, the question that I have, or the challenge that I have, is about the ontology of destituency itself, because I think it, it somewhat runs up against my commitments to Deleuze and a sort of leftist Nietzscheanism, but maybe not with respect to Bataille. So my question is, in the destituent operation, and, and Will and I were talking about this last night, that, that Tari is using ontology strategically so that we do not make recourse to this form of constituent power that always seems to bring us back into the fray of state hegemony, capitalism, and so forth. But it seems, on the other hand, that there is an affirmative quality to his work. I mean, just the, the whole notion of 
communism as a kind of love, like what Danji was talking about with these experiments and so forth. It seems that there is an affirmative dimension to destituent power. And I was hoping maybe that we could parse some of that. And since many of you have been more steeped in this literature than me, Matteo especially, maybe you could answer some of those concerns. So I'll direct that 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 whole piece towards Matteo. Was there a question or concern in there that stood out? And is there a way that maybe you could answer it? I'm not exactly sure if I can answer the question that you posed, but because I am not so knowledgeable about this book rather than the one before. However, I will say that to some extent, what I find interesting in the way that Therese works his way through, I think he sort of, he he wants to liberate the field from a certain ontology of revolution in order to give space to something which is, again, a very sort of a, a, like practical advices to revolutionaries or to people who want to somehow find a way to interpret these lessons this from history in the now. And I think that is the um, that has more to do with ethics, really. It's more the perspective of the how we can sort of construct this community uh, in a way which is, you know, to some extent, we could be talking about the multitude, the sort of Spinozian multitude that also... Paolo Virno talks about as opposed to the people, no? And so something that hasn't entered yet, that sort of, that state, that social contract. But I think that is interesting to me, the way he talks about ethics and the way he talks about, I think at some point, emotional education, he says. Let mm. emotional education begin as the sort of, we need to somehow find a way back to... To, to binding, to, to, to bring together the emotional beyond the subject, but into the struggle and into this sort of mm, process of the subjectivation. I think I lost myself a little oh, bit. Oh, no, that's great. Can I ask you a question on that then? Yeah, sure, um, sure. So what would be some practical ways that emotional education is realized? Well, I think, so for example, if you take the, the Italy and 70s, one, one, one point would be that with radio and Radio Alice, over there, the question was who was speaking and how were they speaking? Okay. So to some extent, it was, it was a very open and flowing and in becoming radio transmission at the same time it was positing the questions and it was sort of making emerge the intrinsic inequalities of telecommunications back in those days the way that they were closed the people that were involved in filtering calls and so on which are mostly female operators and all these things but they were also accepting the fact that in a way this flow was somehow connected to again to this idea of the, the hegemony of desire, this thing that mm. sort of they got from Deleuze and Gattari and the idea that somehow it would be maybe informational, it would be something that then would turn into poetical. So it would work with language in a way that it would deactivate it and open it to another use. Mm. And by doing this, by opening to something like the poetical, you would have certain emotions enter 
the stage of something that otherwise would be uh, very formalized and uh, classic type of, of of talking, for example. No, so already just in the simple way in which someone would talk and the way in which the, the emotional subtext and the singularity of those emotions would emerge in that type of speech, in that pattern of speech, that would change the thing. But another thing that I wanted to say, which I think was connecting to what Henry said before about this, the way that sort of communities come together or like emerge in defense of something or I don't know, as a response to something that happened. I think there is, a, is an interesting way in which the practice of commoning and the commons and sort of producing a common resource and preserving this common resource actually creates a certain type of community. And I think this is not directly mentioned in Terry's book, but I think that this is also what this emotional education to some extent hints to, because in a way, and, and this is also for me the lesson that the movement of 77 Italy teaches, that what they achieved was these different modes of life, these different spaces of life, and these things that were somehow moving beyond not only the state, but beyond the relationship to the state, to the territory, the citizenship, and so on. And so because of that, they were becoming a very powerful resource and a danger, very dangerous resource at the same time. So I think, in a way, that... Um, yeah, that I think really opens up the possibilities for someone to understand what are the, how do we sort of build a new republic in the sense of like the public thing and how do we take care of that and of each other within that. And I think that is sort of this sort of ethical, emotional and political point, which totally doesn't answer your question on ontology. <laughs> no, so that's fine. <laughs> no, that's great. I think what you gave me actually, I mean, looking at it in practical terms, I think it passes it by obliquely. So I think that is helpful. Actually, we have Henry is going to say something next, and then we have Adam, and then I suppose we'll just kind of open it to a free discussion at that point. I just wanted to say something about uh, Tari's sort of bombastic rhetoric about the class and all these things. I think it's important. Earlier, I made a, a counter distinction between the destituent hypothesis and sort of traditional leftist conceptions of you know, Marxist history, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's useful to understand that in this genealogy of the sort of post 68 till today, one of the sort of schools of thought that's influencing Tari's work that's kind of in this sort of intellectual milieu is the followers of Amadeo Bordiga. And if you read an Amadeo Bordiga's work, I don't have all of his texts handy to quote you chapter and verse, but I know it's in, it's either in party and class or on the characteristic theses of the party. He talks about how it's not that the, uh, the party is based on the class, but that the class is based on the party in a certain way. And that the, the work of the Marxist analyst isn't to, I don't know, isn't to look for some kind of metaphysical, ontological, stable grounding for what is the class, but look at the kind of film strip of history and trace the, dyna the dynamism of the movements. And I think when you look at what's going on, there was, there's been kind of a loss of any sort of party direction among the, the working class per se. And this is something that the, the working class, at least in a, a Bordigas conception, it can only really be kind of a small, limited group of uh, those who within the, the class have some kind of consciousness. And part of the destituent hypothesis and part of its power is that we don't demand one small group of people try to order 
everything that goes on. We can have multiple experiments with multiple different sets of consciousness, people with different emotional educations, as we just brought up, attempt to explore various avenues and then kind of just compare empirically saying, okay, we tried this here, we tried that there, what worked and what didn't work. So I just thought I'd bring up this sort of bizarre, go read Jacques Camat and all this stuff if you want to get really in the weeds. That was an excellent answer. Adam, you have something. Well, yeah, just add on to that. There's definitely, again, this catatonic, well, catatonic and cataconic function of the party. It's like, no, there are looming crises. We all be back behind one party who could hold us back from the lawlessness of capitalism, which will require us to manage it, but only for a little bit. And then later, we'll, we'll re- it'll render itself an operative, really. You guys can just sit back and um, go back to work. And yes, your wages will be higher, but we have any more free time? Well, no, but if you say no, that sort of thing. But in terms of the actual distinctions about ontology in this text, I do think there's a, a brilliant linkage between ontology and political economy. Or sorry, in in and ontology and material relations of society and regulations of society. Essentially, a a coextensiveness between ontology and governmentality or technologies of governments. Because whilst he, re- he relies on someone like Rainer Sherman and uh, his notion of essentially the idea of the closure of Western metaphysics as a system rendering all principles inoperative and lending us this anarchic distribution of of, of, of essentially forces. I can't remember the Sherman, but we should go back to our Catherine Malibu episode. I'll talk about the Sherman. But he contrasts this with the way in which the ontology of the subject is no longer fundamental to governmentality, insofar as it is moved from a model of rather than the subject being the core of everything, so rights of the subject, it's moving more in terms of a cybernetic model in which uh, a citizen counts ultimately counts in terms of how they are governed in terms of what information they can be turned into, packets of information. The individuals now, as Deleuze would say, the individual. And I think this move towards cybernetics is reframing for Tari's the entire problematic of, he, he doesn't want to say we have to find a revolutionary subject. Uh, we have to find the revolutionary non-subjects because that's the subject we're dealing with. If there's something that's going to be revolting, it's going to be a non-subject because its subjectivity is no longer the defining principle of how it is governed in relation to production. And in that sense, the cybernetic hypothesis is entirely in line with destituency. And I think this is definitely ties into the very destituent refusal because destituency is the opposite of constituency. It is deinstitutionalizing, but also comes from the Latin uh, destituo, which is, means disappointment. And we, we have been nothing but disappointed by constituent modes of power. The multitude isn't really there. And let's be honest, but we trust it. You can have multitude, but you can't have Murdoch at the same time. Otherwise, it's going to be completely out of control. But otherwise, you can see this in, actions, in various actions in the UK, for example, recently, with the actions against deportation bans. Essentially, these Gestapo people slash fans sent in by the British state. Just yesterday, people were, there are loads of networks of anti-raid networks. People show up, they get about 100 people in front of these vans. They'll send right police in and they'll push back and they were still standing still. The people were still there. Eventually, they let the person who they've tried to capture go. The control over the areas has been repudiated, not so much by signaling that we the people are we are going to take over this area and suit the people's governance of this state but simply by deactivating their control not by providing a sort of a new signal for the area but in terms of block a blockage 
it's not so much this area is controlled by signal, it's, it's deactivating the control of the area by those by noise, a pure sort of intensity, which ultimately says nothing to the, the police in the UK work by a model called yeah, policing by consent. And of course, everyone knows this is bullshit, but the movements around sort of these anti-police actions in the UK have always been built around the idea of, okay, then, let's hashtag withdraw consent. And of course, that is completely, that's complete noise of the systems of British governance, because that's not what you'd be able to do. <laughs> but it's not saying withdrawing consent and say, we'll give it back for the people's police. It's that, no, it's withdraw consent. And not even full stop, you know, simple as, don't like it, there's a constituency. Great. Will, you had something um, you wanted to talk about the future and futurity. Yeah, I think it's actually really important. And I think it's important in Tari's approach to the messianic. And I think it's important to Tari's approach to the notion of means and ends, right? Both of which exist in Agamben's work. So first is this idea of the revolution that betrays the revolt, right? So a revolution has utility right? Utility explicitly when it can produce a constituted power that has the capacity to preserve itself. And this is precisely the approach to revolt and revolution that Tari is attempting to neutralize. And we have to like ensure that our understandings of like endurance are not articulations of this preservation, right? Because what is constituent power par excellence? It's the police, right? So the police become that which carry the weight of figures like Robespierre or Paine or all of these strange revolutionary, pseudo-revolutionary figures. And in a certain sense, I think that this question of futurity is actually extremely important to, to Tari. Gombin will note in his book on Jesus and Pilate, Jesus always speaks of the kingdom in the present, right? It's the perfect sense that the kingdom is come, right? And this idea of this idea of people to come for Tari, perpetually deferred people. That's the Deridian notion of the democratic. That's the Deridian notion of the governance. For Tari, the, the, these people are here. They are les enfants perdus, right? Like the people of this world are the lost children of today, that this is a communism of imminence. This is an understanding of the kingdom that runs concurrent with the parochial world, right? The messianic time constantly traverses parochial time. We, the possibility of the sojourning of the church is present with the parochial, the parochial order. And I think that, in fact, this question of futurity is fundamental to Tari's understanding of the, the conducting of conduct, right? And his reading of Foucault, because what is the function of the disciplinary apparatus of control of all of these other things that constitute the hell world that we live in? It is that all of these means of intercepting bodies, of torturing people, of controlling them are directed at an always unfulfilled telos. And I think what figures like Agamben and, uh, and Tari and <laughs> Foucault Tranti are trying to do is to avoid this. I think Benjamin most explicitly. And it's this idea of the revolutionary party. And I think this is why utility is something that's so important to, to Tari that he's going to oppose with the question of use. Because this world is here. It's already here. It's just 
The way in which it is utilized under a cruel utilitarianism is precisely what needs to change. So rather than utility, what we need is a different use of this world, of these relations that need to be delinked. And I think these questions of futurity and of endurance, I think can sometimes for Tari necessitate uh, a kind of anxiety. So for that reason, I think the question of the future is really important, but I think what Tari's response would be is in line with Agamben's discussion of pure means, right? Or play. So I think that it's a really important question. And I think Tari really does try to give an explanation of why he has this approach to the future that he does and why Tari is not willing to describe Deleuze's people as a people to, to come, but as a missing people of today, mm-hmm. right? That beneath the paving stones is not the people, is not the beach, but the very people that we miss in this world. Every airport is not a ban- is a banquet foreclosed upon. And I think that for that reason, the future is, in fact, like a very important uh, component of this book. It just has a very careful approach to the question. Yeah, that's great. I mean, just to use the language of Bataille for a moment, which I know is a bit different than Agamben, but this embodiment of the sovereign subject as a way of reorienting ourselves towards a notion of use and a notion of utility, and perhaps even completely inverting or, or displacing the notion of use as a means to achieving a form of desubjectivation or communism that, that we're searching for seems to be uh, a preeminent concern. But maybe at this time, I think we're closing in on what will be the final questions or the final comments. Will, since you were kind of the organizer of this discussion, did you want to give us a final topic or maybe ask some final questions to the guests? Yeah, a final topic that I think would be sort of important to to talk about is how do we understand this question of political action that Agamben is sort of tussled with and struggled with, Tari has struggled with, in a sense, to the point where Tari has to do away with it. How do we think of gesture and of political activity of the history of the oppressed, whose very identity is predicated on existing within the horizon of the law, right? Whether that is undocumented comrades being thrown into deportation vans, all of these things exist within the horizon of the law. And all of these forms of opposition have to, in a certain sense, inhabit that and dwell in that as well. So in, in what ways can we start to think of, of modes of deposition that are outside and against rather than sort of the Tronti idea of within and against? Then I think Tronti takes it to the extreme <laughs> by, by literally serving in parliament while writing, you know, and voting for austerity measures too, which is bizarre and, and writing these texts on destituent power and revolutionary organizing. And, but how do we think outside of the horizon of the law when dealing with this text? Because I think that's the true challenge that, that Tari posits. And maybe because Matteo is kind of the expert on Tari, even though it's only a particular element of his scholarship, I think we're all very excited. That's huge news. So many of my friends have been talking about how they want this book out there. So this will be huge for them to hear it. But Matteo, if you could give some thoughts and then maybe Donji, just to make sure that we get our, our guests in um, on this discussion. Well, I think that the probably the question of how do we operate outside of the law 
to some extent means how do we operate outside identity? Because I think that is a sort of, I think that's a tikkun actually quote. It's like the empire actually asks everyone to conform to their own identity in order to police them and so on. And so I think that's the main question, which is, I don't know, I think to some extent I only have sort of tactical suggestions to offer to that. I think someone was mentioning in the chat before this book by Luther Blissett Q. And Luther Blissett is a very interesting example of a tactical solution for this. There is also another reference, which is this book by Marco De Seris called Improper Names. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's a great book. It's really brilliant in the way which he talks about examples throughout history. The first being, for example, Ned Lud for this for the Luddites and and sort of being names that are not only collective pseudonyms, but are also improper in the sense that they sort of deactivate what the names actually does in terms of individuation. So I think this is, for example, something which I find very interesting and I find would somehow work towards moving beyond this idea of the identity and the law. Another example, I think this time by... It's actually... Federico Campagna, I think, in his book, he talks about the, the heteronyms of Pessoa and the way in which Pessoa, the Portuguese poet, was putting together different, different personas, actually, and having them react to each other. And they were in the world as if they were real personas. And this as if is somehow the, the model, which I think is, is somehow the interesting model. Yeah, I realize that I've done a lot of references now that are not actually based on this particular text, but... That's great, right? But I think, yeah, but I think in a way, the again, he still, he, he does make some references to this movement of 77. And I think the interesting thing about that was that he, in this... In the earlier book, he talks about how they actually tried to make this move outside and against. And and obviously, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it, it didn't work. It didn't work in a spectacular way to some extent. As some people say, the 68 in Italy was is still celebrated, where, whereas the 77 was sort of annihilated and they were uh, thrown out of revolutionary history, so to say, at least uh, sort of the official revolutionary history. But I still think that's also the point of, if you see like how the, the historical conjunction of that moment, the way in which Italy was a, a laboratory for neoliberal governmentality techniques and policies that were coming and the sort of subjectivities that uh, would then become the, the, the cornerstones of neoliberalism were actually on the rise. And the way that that autonomia movement was able to anticipate it and try to actually to use those exact type of those exact type of, 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 of concepts and of subjectivities, but to divert them to a different use. I think that is, uh, that is very interesting and is very actual now, it's very relevant to today, even if we're in a sort of advanced post-mortem stage of neoliberalism, because it is still the question of how do we actually recuperate from the existing and 
open up, open it up and declinate it in a different way. And so I think this is obviously has to do with the law, has to do with language, has to do with uh, any way we, we sort of all these, all this, all the fields in which these modes of subjectivation and these particular identities are constructed. So it, it concerns all these different fields. And I think the best we can actually do is to find the fields that we most, with, that we are most sort of connected with and operate those changes in, in, in those fields. Oh, great. Danji, did you want to say something? Yeah, let me try and jump in from there. I hope I can wind around what I'd like to say here and say it. The question of what to do or where to go or, or how to act, I guess, is prescient and, and kind of what the reading group I participated in on this book last year certainly ended up spinning and spiraling around over and over again of, well, this feels good. This kind of is ticking all the boxes for getting my brain going about exciting things, potentials, potentialities springing from different modes of, of thinking about inoperativity and, and collective versus individual action or whatever. But like, actually, where do we actually, what do we do? And, and, and Tari's not giving us really an answer to that question in this book. But if I can try and string out one thought that I think is in the book that helps me get somewhere with this it's so starting with what henry brought up earlier at the beginning of our chat about him his discussion of paul right in the beginning of the first chapter he winds around to this um this concept of the, the people who have nothing or more precisely translated perhaps people who are as if they have nothing and that this negation of we are nothing containing the refusal of identity but also in it having a positivity of and yet we are everything, not two different stages, no before and after, not a past future, but rather a single motion. And he likes to, he, he brings up Brecht as a way of saying this. Brecht says, calls it maybe improvisation with a defined goal, this tension, but like this through path of, of being able to act individually in a collective manner without submitting to one or the other as the whole of what you're up to or who you are. And this kind of brings us, I think, later in, or later in the book, he's kind of, he gets to this discussion of territory, of occupying space, taking a building, a plot of earth or a farm does not mean much at all unless one is able to inhabit these places. So the inhabiting, the dwelling is really where maybe the action is from this improvisation stemming from a defined goal that's not defined by individuality nor collectivity but then it's not even about the territory itself either because he says what we can begin to inhabit is neither the metropolis nor the territory but the excess of the antagonistic relation between them its remainder so we're left with by chapter nine how can we imagine, he's jumping off of Benjamin here, how can we imagine a political act that can be shared, rendered communal, citable, habitable, or habitual, sorry, porous and usable without ever referring to something external? And I think the closest place he actually defines where he goes with this is into something like inoperative gesture, which views crisis as the present positively, opening up the potential to become another while remaining oneself. So. How can we create, craft, inoperative gestures that entice and even intoxicate in the individual to improvise collectively towards a defined goal? I think this is kind of like the question of action and operability in inoperability, which 
as the closest to like a, an actionable kind of take, which I can take from this book, at least clearly from my first readings of it. And I'll just say anecdotally, I'm calling in here from the edge of the Atlanta forest resistance struggle, where there's a planned enormous mega police training facility plan to raise and tear down a beautiful chunk of urban forest here in the middle of, of Atlanta, which has a incredible history to it and is used as a real together a place of togetherness and, and life a, an oasis of togetherness in the middle of a crazy city this kind of gesture last night we were here there was a dance party in the forest this morning the people who are still there there was a, without getting into specifics there was a, a situation that needed a lot of hands on deck like at 6 a.m and the people who were there the remnants of the dance party were like the foot soldiers of kind of helping get the final uh, people power to this situation that needed attending to and so to me this is organizing pessimism this is improvisation without a defined goal like we're here because fuck 12 but what we're here to do is inhabit this remainder that's not the metropolis it's not the territory it's this weird interstice between them our love of each other and just these gestures and like the intoxicating kind of like nature of the intensity of these experiences keeps us here draws us together and then all we know is how to improvise from there and that's the action that we can actually take we can't maybe define it until it's literally right in front of us calling our name requiring us to show up and be there together and and if we can i think stay open to the vague poetics of this sort of orientation or even if there's an ontology to be pulled out of there that you could find yourself to dwell from then maybe we're getting closer to actually inhabiting and experiencing and uh, and living communism together awesome that's great yeah and it, just to kind of put a familiar frame around it for our listeners it, it sounds to me uh, a very like sort of nomadic kind of activity in the sense that these dance parties create a kind of nomos. There's this kind of vortical movement, this sort of splaying out of these intensities. And it sounds like what you're talking about is very passional. It's alive. It's exciting. And I think some of the work of the left and some of the online discourse is, is sometimes very enervating. I think the, the sort of spontaneous dimension of what you're talking about also lends to its effectivity in some sense. I don't know if you could respond to that. It seems to me that the easiest way for me to, to get there is that, especially from taking the cues from Tari here, is the, the party bureaucratic organizational cadre front, whatever kind of standpoint is maybe uh, basically operating inside of what Tari's considering like hegemonic time. And that the spontaneity is what's involved in the suspension, the interruption, and the, and that, that comes through, that comes with intensities, which like continue to have a center of gravity, which hold, which actually accumulate more and more intensities and can actually like snowball in ways that organizational structure that's defined and like theorized, like with a Cartesian kind of like view of a progression towards a revolutionary moment can never really muster. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. You put it way better than I did. <laughs> yes. Anything else that we want to say before we wrap up? I think my well, lunch. I just wanted to well, go ahead. Adam. I just wanted to add some, something extra on the notion of gesture here, and just build on what, what you're saying, Danji, about. I, just, I found this amazing quote from Tari from uh, There Is No Happy Revolution that says, in order to become constituent, territories must be deeply inhabited and intensely populated by ungovernable affects. So we're sitting at the real sort of effective level here. I also, also want to think about the notion of gesture, because the constituent gesture in the strike from chapter 
four, four or five is the showing of the elementary decision between law and justice. It's putting those two apart. And I think in all these confrontations with, with the constituent, which are ultimately confrontation with the police, you are essentially creating a chasm between law and justice. There's two ways of this is, is operating. So, for example, in one level, the constituent gesture operates against law in the sense of the disciplinary function of law, saying that you are, we are not represented by this institution and, you know, fuck 12. When, when the police were thrown out of Peckham yesterday, they weren't saying, come back when you better represent the people, damn it. They went, no, they said, <laughs> they said don't come back. They didn't say, excuse me, please come back for the proper papers. I need to feel I'm being represented properly. No. There's two registers of this, of course. On the effective level, there is a refusal to subjectivity that is called upon you to be a subject to law, to the mode of governmentality of that subjection and discipline. There's also the ad additional intensive gesture, which is the gesture that essentially uses these affects become ungovernable to uh, cybernetic control societies insofar as they no longer produce a signal that the system can use to, to essentially to, to feed back on itself, to send the system into a state of what the Invisible Committee called panic because they don't know what's going on. There's not as much they can get out of this information because it's all noise to them. And I think this function of the affect is to generate this kind of noise, a noise which can't be processed into the dialogical format of conflict, of conflict control and resolution that our contemporary cybernetic societies operate on. And this is why I think these actions, as, as yourself and your other, your other comrades are taking Dungey over in Atlanta, are so important because it is, we are not here like, it's not like a Chartist revolt. We have the banner saying, here are demands. Our demands are that you fuck off because we don't want you to fulfill them and you cannot fulfill them. Essentially, it is, go away. We want control over this territory. We want to deterritorialize it insofar as we are inhabiting it. And this is the, this is the fundamental gesture of occupation, creating this break between the actual, the actual constituted power and the situ potentiality, which is always in excess of it. Another, you're literally using another use of, of this world. I, had, I guess I had two last thoughts about this. One was that there's a section in, in the book where Tawi references the Invisible Committee and talks about, so there's a passage in, in To Our Friends, he quotes, where they write that subtraction is affirmation and affirmation is an element of attack. And he says, he doesn't disagree with it, but he wants to emphasize that it, the gesture is both at the same time. Right. It's not, there's no chronology to it. It's one and the same thing to, to subtract and to affirm it is the same thing. And I like that, that element to this because there's often this question of, at least if you want to go into the philosophical sort of side of it, how elements of negation and affirmation play out here, particularly as I think many people who are, in, who are sort of interested in the work of Tawi and the Invisible Committee and so on also have some interest in Deleuze and Qatari, where this is a sort of important sort of question for them is how politics relates to affirmation and so on. So I, I like the idea that we have to understand the constituent gesture is both. It's not, it, it's both a kind of subtraction, which sort of negates or renders inoperative how things are. But it, it, at least on my reading or the way I would, I would tend to look at it, it does that by affirming something else, right? The possibility of something else embodied in a, in a distinct form of life, which does not conform to capital, to the ideologies and sort of subjectivities sort of, sort of we are told essentially to identify with in order to make it easier to control people. So I, I like the way that he sort of collapses these things. It's not, there's no contradiction here. It's sort of both, right? 
But also, and this may sound like a weird reference, I, I may have raised it in previous episodes when this comes up, but there's a really interesting book by author Jenny O'Dell. I think the title is quite, it's not, not, not a good book title, but it... <clears throat> It's misleading. It's called How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy. And it sounds like it's going to be a sort of how to sort of unplug from Facebook. And it's really not. It's very interesting, I think. One of the things she's talking about, and we're talking about sort of dwelling, I think it might have been Danji was talking about sort of dwelling and inhabiting is going to be part of this. One of the, one of the elements of that that she emphasizes is habits of noting, of paying attention to things that that we don't normally. And she has this wonderful way of doing it in, in, in her book where every few chapters she'll talk about the fact that she, she takes up, I think it's bird watching. And she, she has this moment where she realizes she sees these, you know, these beautiful creatures all the time, but almost don't even register. And she certainly couldn't, you know, distinguish between any of them. And she found that once she started doing that, she found that she would sort of she had a sense of presence and dwelling from this act of noticing. And she sort of started expanding it from just this one example to to more things in her daily life. And so there was one of the things she emphasizes is, is sort of a, not just a presence, but also the political sort of element of this, which is the notion of uh, the commons, which is an important thing for, for Terry as well. I know he discusses this quite a lot in the book. So there's this emphasis on dwelling. And I think one of the things I took from that book that I, I think I read a couple of years ago, it just brought this to mind, right? That, that how do we find new ways of, of being, of dwelling? And there's, it's an interesting sort of exploration of that, of, of noticing things that we just don't, but, but simply don't register as part of our lives. I thought maybe there's an interesting way of exploring that as well. So I'll leave it, but I, maybe I didn't make the point as well as I'd have liked to. But. So I just want to say thank you to everybody again, Matteo, Henry, and Danji for taking time out of your evenings or afternoons, wherever you're at, to talk with us about destituent communism. Before you go, would you be willing to offer us some resources to learn more or maybe promote something that you're working on or where would you like our listenership to direct their attention with respect to this work? And I'll let Matteo go first. Uh, so apart from that particular text uh, about improper names that I mentioned before, which I think is, is quite interesting. Yeah, I think I would just say I can direct you to sometimes some of the shows we have on Kashmir Radio, which is where I work. And some there is some uh, some shows that deal with questions of, I don't know, just sort of subverting a bit the medium and trying to think about the construction of space in a different way in this medium or like thinking about radio as a different sort of social media not the way we are used to know it and which i think uh, is obviously not directly related but maybe can exemplify some practical attempts at actually you know, just translating this, the theory of uh, Marcello. And yeah, I think that's it from my side. Great. What I'll do later then is I'll get those links from you and we'll put those in the show notes so that people can find them. Henry, what about you? We know about Forms podcast and we'll put that in the podcast. There is an episode of Forms that's relevant to this discussion, which would be the one on Agamben's book, The Church and the Kingdom. I think also... If you've listened to this and you're interested, but you don't really know how to condense what we've said to something that you could share with somebody, I think the book Inhabit from the uh, eponymous uh, collective at readinhabit.com is good. Obviously, Q by Luther Blissett, the work of Peter Linebaugh in general from U of M, who talks about sort of the history of various forms of sort of commons 
and revolts historically. I think going back into history is very interesting. On this question that was evoked briefly about names and our position toward the world and avoiding some of the pitfalls, I always go back to Plato's Republic, Book Six, for the extended discussion on exile and the role of exile and uh, maintaining discursive flexibility through this kind of marginal position. But yeah, I just I thank you all. This was great discussion. Thank you uh, very much. It was great. Awesome. And Danji, before we go, maybe you want to uh, say a little bit more about how to support the folks that you're organizing with and, and anything else that you've encountered along the way. Yeah, sure. I'd echo readinhabit.com. And if you want to check out what this uh, looks like and how to support this forest defense, like in, in this one of these liminal remainders of uh, antagonistic territory here in Atlanta, it's defend the atlantaforest.org or i think defend the atl forest on twitter they have some active feeds if i got those links wrong i bet we can get them right in the description and and yeah i don't know i i don't know if i have any more uh i'll leave it at that i don't have any theory recommendations i think y'all are uh (laughs) filling that list out nicely so all right thank you to all of our guests once again and hopefully we have some of you back sometime in the future